Amen. Thank you, Brother Baker. Let's take our Bibles, please. Turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. I got a, quite an email on Sunday. Uh, I didn't get it until I got home Sunday night. Uh, from Wolfgang, we had expressed that we were concerned. We couldn't get in touch with him. And uh, he was watching on live stream down in, I think, North Carolina. And he was quite touched by it all. And so he was so thankful that we missed him. And so, but he's alive and well and down visiting his son and his children and grandchildren. And he's really thrilled about being able to take that trip. So, uh, so just uh, continue to pray for him and his health. Uh, but I'm so, I know that was his dream to be able to go down there before he wasn't able to travel anymore. And so uh, we praise the Lord for that. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We're in verse... Uh, 14 through the end of the chapter tonight. We have covered the first chapter and a half. We talked about the first week, Roman numeral one. If you're following the outline, every week just continues one continuous outline, and tonight is Roman numeral four. I actually made a mistake on the handout last week, and so if you are trying to put them in the right order for your home, up in the top right corner, it'll say lesson one, two, three, or four. All right, so lesson three said Roman numeral two, but it should have said Roman numeral three. I caught that today when I was looking back to see where I was. And so tonight is Roman numeral four. Roman numeral one was the Christian and his battles. And then we went on to the Christian and his Bible. And last week was the Christian and his brethren, how we are to treat one another. And then tonight is the Christian and his beliefs. And so it's all about Christian growth and how we are to grow into what God wants us to be. And so James identifies some areas, no doubt, from his local church, the Church of Jerusalem seeing some issues and some problems and what was going on. And so he began to address those things, and the Holy Spirit, of course, inspired these words and uh, gave us a book that we could apply to us as well today. So let's look at James chapter 2 and verse 14. We'll just read a couple verses to start. What did the prophet, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food... And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Let's pray together. Father, help us, Lord, to understand your word and help us to grow. Teach us tonight. May the Spirit of God fill me. I need your help. And so, Lord, I surrender to you. And may the same Spirit teach each one of us, Lord, as you've promised uh, to illuminate your word and help us to understand it. And Father, pray that you just commit it also to our hearts and our memories. Uh, Lord, that we might do our very best to be changed more into your likeness as a result of looking into your word. And Father, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the apostle, or not, sorry, not the apostle, the pastor here, James, now turns to the question of what is right and wrong. It's interesting how uh, really he's divided the book up for us for the letter, and he just kind of stops right in the middle of this chapter and goes on to the next. But keep in mind that the chapters were added years later in the 1600s, and it had nothing to do with the letter that was written, just divide so that you and I can find things quickly in the church service. And so James was not necessarily divided into these chapters or these verses, and so this natural transition would come just as another paragraph starts in verse 14. And he begins to talk about the Christians and his belief, and he says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Now let me give you a disclaimer before we even start tonight. If we ask that question, can faith save him? The answer in our hearts is always going to be, well, of course you can be saved. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. We don't dispute that for a moment. Can faith save somebody? 
And that's all that James is trying to say tonight. And understand that Scripture always agrees with Scripture. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we know that by having a simple childlike faith and calling upon Jesus, we can be saved. It's enough. What James is addressing is, does he really have the type of faith that will save him? If he has faith without works, a faith that is a dead faith, will that truly save him? Did he really get saved in the first place? Is there evidence or a justification of his faith that is evident to the world around him? Is his faith changed him in some way? And that's what we're going to look at tonight. And it is, again, in the typical style of James, he takes this one thing and he hammers it home about five different ways. And so we will just stick right to that topic. But we see, first of all, the approach. First of all, we see this false claim is quoted. What did the prophet, my brethren, though a man say you have faith and have not works? Here's about a man that is boasting that he has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet there's no evidence in his life whatsoever. The Bible says that every tree is known by its fruits. Another passage says, by your fruits ye you shall know them. And so there is something to be said about putting forth fruit and an evidence of our faith. It doesn't necessarily mean that somebody does not have saving faith, but it, it does mean that perhaps that, that faith that they have is in fact uh, dead or useless in, in the sense of Scripture. And so we want to look a little deeper at that to make sure that we have the right type of faith. Now, we do have to question ourselves sometimes. We have to ask the question, if my faith is dead, is that the kind of faith that I had when I asked Christ to save me? Am I truly saved? I've not seen any transformation in my life. There are no works that testify that I've actually changed. Oh, there are works, but maybe they're not the works that glorify the Lord. And so we need to have that life-saving change take place in our lives as well. And so we see his approach. He quotes this false claim. The, the question is, can you divorce faith from works? Can they be separated? Are the two exclusive to each other? And so we see this claim quoted, but then we also see this false claim is questioned in the second part. He says, can faith save him? Martin Luther, the reformer, and the Lutheran church is named after him. He always claimed that the epistle of James was an epistle of straw. So it didn't have any weight. He emphasized that the just shall live by faith as it was found in the book of Habakkuk and repeated in the book of Romans. But James was not striving to add to a saving faith, but we must add to our living daily walking faith. You say, is there a difference? I, I believe there is. There's a faith that I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save me. That's the saving faith. But then the Bible says we must also live by faith. Are you following me tonight? You're tracking me? And so my actions and my deeds must also be by faith. Every one of us tonight can think of a time when maybe we first got saved, we trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and then we came into a financial crisis. And we ran to the bank, and we ran to get a loan, or we ran to our parents, or we ran somewhere, and we tried every avenue of help except just trusting in the Lord. And so we may have saving faith, but our faith didn't have active works, did it? And that's just one example. There are many other things we could apply there. But yes, we got saved, but our faith was small in, in, in trusting God with other things. Our, our children had a health crisis or something else came along in their life, and we failed to commit it to the Lord like we ought to. 
We've all gone through those valleys in our lives. And so that's the kind of faith the Bible is talking to about tonight. He says, is your faith dead? And if your faith is dead, what about your saving faith? Were you truly saved? We have to back up and ask and examine uh, our lives in, in that respect. Second Peter chapter 2, I believe, is talking about this kind of faith when he says, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And then he lists some things. Virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. The Apostle Paul taught an imputed righteousness. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see over and over again that these folks that obeyed God, it was counted unto them for righteousness. That was an imputed righteousness because of their saving faith. They trusted in God. But Paul, or the, uh, James now is asking us to, to have a practical righteousness. How does faith change us, not inwardly, but now outwardly? Now faith changes you inwardly first, but our actions and our deeds and our works, they ought to also change. And so, how is your faith revealed? Might be a good way to put it. So we see the approach, and now I want you to see the appraisal and how he sizes up the situation in verse 15. If a brother or a sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? And so he gives us a case to consider. And first of all, we see the need discerned. James identifies a genuine need in verse 15. Very simply, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food. I think we could all agree that's a need. You need daily foods. You need clothing. You need provisions, a roof over your head. And so he gives them this case. And no doubt this was something that was often repeated in the church of Jerusalem. You understand this church was persecuted and scattered abroad. It is the church that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when Paul was taking an offering from the churches of Macedonia and Achaia that he would take some relief back to this church of Jerusalem to try to help them. But I want, I want to say tonight that I don't believe it was only because of persecution that this church suffered. I believe this church suffered also because they did not embrace uh, Christ's principle for living. They, they were new baby Christians, just like you and I once were. And they struggled. Let, let me prove that to you, if I could. In Acts chapter 2, turn back to Acts chapter 2. Keep your finger in James or put a bookmark there. But look at Acts chapter 2, this church of Jerusalem. Of course, James is the pastor of that church or a pastor at that church. And so we want to kind of get a context of what he was talking about. In Acts chapter 2, look at verse... 44, and all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, believe it or not, there are religious groups out there today that live in communes. How many of you have seen that? Remember Waco, Texas? They actually base it on this verse right here. Wow, the early church had all things in common. They all lived together in common, in accord. And, and that's where they get it from. This is not an endorsement of that. This is just a fact of what was going on in the day of the early church. Likely because they had to. It was safer to live together. It was safer to, to share one another's things. They were being persecuted. So the Bible says they had 
all, they, they were together and they had all things common. Verse 45, and they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. It's funny how they lived, isn't it? They would just, whatever I've got is yours. They just sell everything, bring all the money in. Hey, I know we don't have enough food, let's just share. And they just lived together and worked together. And the Bible says, and they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house to eat their meat with gladness and signalness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So we have this early church living together. They're, they're obviously poor because now they're having to sell their possessions and bring them in. Now, one of the reasons I think they are probably poor is because they were willing to sacrifice. I'm not talking about uh, like a monk would today taking a vow of poverty, but they were literally going out every day preaching the gospel. And some said, you know what, I'm not worried about my physical being anymore. I'm just going to go and live for Jesus and preach the gospel. God will take care of me. And so they were having some physical needs because of that. And so others said, well, we're going to get behind that. And they, they sold their possessions and they brought them into this commune type setting. And they lived and lived off of each other. And it seemed, and by the way, the Bible says they were all in one accord. I, that's amazing that they would all live together like that. I, how many of you know you can't even live in the same house with your own children sometimes for more than a you need a break every once in a while. I understand. And uh, somebody said the greatest blessing about grandkids is they go home. I don't know if that's true, and I don't have them yet. But, you know, you, you kind of need that space sometimes. Not so in the first century church. They just love being together, and they love fellowshipping, and they took care of one another's needs. But then you see, as you read on, look at chapter 4. We see some examples here of some great generosity. And if you look right at the uh, end, verse 34, neither was there any among them that lacked. Well, they're doing pretty good here. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And so this, this early church is doing pretty well. They're, they're eating well. Nobody lacked anything. God is supplying their need. They're going out and preaching the gospel, and things are going very well. And God is blessing because the church is in harmony. They're getting along. The Bible says, as we read down in verse 36, And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there's a lot of generosity in this early church. Now look at the next chapter. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all men that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. Just a few days earlier, or a few weeks earlier, we've had some acts of great generosity, but now we have some fraud going on. We have a man that has sold a piece of land and kept the money for himself and saw his opportunity. Everybody else was giving their money to the church, and so maybe I can sell some property, but I'll keep it for myself and just give a small price. 
The Bible teaches us, and I won't take the time to read it, that his wife Sapphira went out, came into the church a few hours later, and she said the same thing. The apostle said to her, Peter, did you sell it for this much? She said, absolutely. And she says, the men that carried thy husband out will also carry thee out, and she dropped dead as well. God smote her. The Bible doesn't say it, but it affected something in the church that day. Something changed. You say, how do you know? Took a look at Acts chapter 6. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Just a few days earlier, a few weeks earlier, the Bible says they lacked nothing. People were giving, people were generous. But one man comes in and commits fraud, and people say, oh, maybe I can't trust that ministry. Maybe I shouldn't give my money all to the apostles anymore. Maybe we shouldn't be. And all of a sudden, the widows are being neglected. And there's a murmuring among the Grecians against the Jews. You see what happens when greed gets in? As soon as greed crept into the first church, we have the first problem of the first church. And the way they solved the problem was appointing deacons to take care of those needs. And so we we have to be very careful about how we view worldly things, carnal things, things that are important to us. Yes, we have to have money, we have to have food, we have to eat. I I mean, I like having heat on in my house just like anybody else. But we have to be careful about the love of money, again. And so as we go back to James chapter 2, look back there. James chapter 2. We have a perspective now of what this early church was going through. And James says, listen... If a man is destitute and naked, I want to say that some of those problems were brought on by themselves because of what we see in the book of Acts and the the greediness of Ananias and Sapphira and likely this problem that began to arise and now it has put the church in a bad place. But James says it has also turned some of your hearts because look what he says in verse 16. And one of you say unto them, depart in peace. Be warmed and filled. I want to suggest to you that would not have happened in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, or Acts chapter 4. If somebody came and said, listen, I'm hungry, they would have had whatever they wanted. Their need would have been supplied and they would have been taken care of. But because of what happened in Acts chapter 5, and we see the murmuring arise in Acts chapter 6, James, the pastor of that church in Jerusalem from the book of Acts, can say without a certainty, listen, here's what's going on. People are saying, well... We'll be thinking about you. You be warm, you be filled, but they're going away hungry anyway. I, I got to tell you, I'm just going to share a pet peeve with you. I, I'm not on Facebook very often. Once in a while, I'll look at my wife's Facebook just to see what's going on. And every once in a while, you'll see somebody died or some, pray for somebody they're sick or pray for somebody they've died or their family or what have you. And one of the things that bugs me is that in the comments that come out underneath, People say, well, I'm sending good thoughts your way. What is that? Really? You're sending good thoughts my way. Are you the Buddha? I mean, we have become so... And by the way, it's from born-again Bible-believing Christians that are saying stuff like that. Are we that foolish? Hey, why not pray for somebody? Are you ashamed of your faith to put down, hey, I'm praying for you. I'll bring you before the throne of grace. I'm sending good thoughts. It sounds so stupid to me. I don't like using the S word from the pulpit, but it does. 
What a bunch of foolishness. That's what our Christianity has been reduced to. And James says, that's a problem. That's a real problem here. Oh, you're hungry? Well, you know what? Have a great day and be filled and be warm. Hey, it doesn't work that way. Now, don't get me wrong, and we're going to address this as we go. We see the, the problem, and then we see the fact demonstrated is the next point, letter B, the fact demonstrated. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, or sorry, I'm on the wrong one. Uh, the need discerned, letter B, is the need dismissed, and that's what we're talking about in verse 16. And one of you saying to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them uh, not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? How are you helping them? And so we see the foolish assertion. To simply pronounce God's blessing on somebody doesn't help. But then we see a foolish assumption. The second part of B, there's no profit in it. There's no physical help whatsoever. But look at his conclusion in verse 17. A conclusion to consider. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. James is looking at his church and saying, boy, you know, I remember when their faith actually would have solved that problem. But now their faith is dead. Likely they've been damaged by the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. And, and by the way, when the Bible states something, it's not likely the only thing that happened. There was likely other problems. There was likely others that followed suit. There were those that were behaving poorly as well. And so because of it now, they were just dismissing the need. And yet there was no help. And so the conclusion we see, first of all, it's a precise conclusion. Verse 17, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead. He's just telling them straight up. I'm going to be level with you, he's saying. Your faith is dead because it has no works. Now, I don't believe that James is asking anybody to give up their last piece of bread. That does not go along with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He said, I don't mean for you to be burdened while others have abundance. Hey, he didn't want them to, he says, now you have given out of your poverty, but that's not what I asked. You'll remember the churches of Macedonia, they begged Paul to take the offering to the church of Jerusalem. Paul, what I see unfolding there is Paul said, listen, this is too much. You folks are hungry too. And they pleaded with him. They beseeched him to take this offering. But Paul says, I don't mean for you to be burdened. And so I don't believe that Paul is saying, or James in, in James chapter 2 is being inconsistent with Paul. I don't believe he's saying to you, listen, give, give what you have even though you need it for your children and your family. But he's saying, I've given you certain gifts to be a steward of. And if you are able to help, and if you can be a blessing, you ought to be a blessing. You ought to be an encouragement. And, and, you know, sometimes we do that. Somebody comes and, and they, they want something or need something. In the very least, we could stop and pray with them and give them some real spiritual help. And so we have a gift that God has given us, and we are to, to be a help and, and, and to be a blessing. And, and otherwise, we're just displaying a dead faith. Verse 18, we see a precise conclusion in verse 17, but we see a practical conclusion in verse 18. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. James is, what James is trying to conclude for us tonight is that I'm going to be an extra mile Christian. I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to do what I can to be a help and a blessing. And, and it may not 
pan out in the end. I was just talking to somebody the other day that lent some help to somebody in the church, and I, I knew that I was aware that they had done that, and, and it had taken place a long time ago, but I was not aware that they had spent seven or $800 of their own money and said to their spouse, I don't know that we'll ever see that money again, but that's okay. I think we did the right thing. I don't believe they did see the money, and I don't believe they will see the money. But they were able, so they did something. You say, well, I don't have that kind of money. No, so you work within the framework God has placed you. And you try to be a blessing the way you can be a blessing. But let's not just turn somebody away without any help whatsoever. I'm thankful that God has blessed us and taken care of our needs. And, and I'm not saying I have a daughter in college and we have, you know, we have tuition in the academy. We got, we got things going on too, but I'll tell you this, there's always an extra piece of chicken somewhere at our table. I hope that's our attitude. I've, I've sprung on my wife a few times. I've called, honey, is it okay if somebody, you know, somebody come for supper? She's never said no. She's wanted to kill me after, but she's never said no, never turned them away. And so, and usually when it's, it's just we have to stretch something or we have to, or else she has to fluff stuff real quick. You understand what I mean, ladies? Clean the house real fast, you know? Uh, but we've never, we've, I'm not trying to pat anybody on the back. I'll pat my wife on the back. She's never said no. We, that ought to be our heart, our desire. Years ago, God, uh, God gave us a van years ago that, that uh, the church uh, went behind our backs and got us a van in Stony Creek. And such a blessing. And we decided right from that day that was God's vehicle. And if anybody needed a ride, they were going to get a ride because God gave us that vehicle. Listen, what we have, we are to be stewards of. And if God has given you something, and I say that to God's glory because it was his van, not mine then we are to use it for his glory, for his honor. So that's the practical conclusion that we find out in verse 18. By the way, in a spiritual sense, it doesn't cost anything to be a good testimony. It doesn't cost anything to share the gospel, to hand out a tract. It costs nothing to be friendly or to show you care. So we can always give away those things. Then we see the application, letter C. The application in verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? He just keeps saying that, doesn't he? How many, how many of you are getting the idea James doesn't like dead faith? That faith without works is dead. He just keeps saying it over. But look at verse 19. I never really understood this verse before until I studied it and got it into context and read some commentaries. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. It just seems like it's stuck in there. But notice what he is, what he is saying. He's talking about displaying your faith. That's what the whole chapter is about, isn't it? How do we display our faith to a lost and dying world? How do we display our faith to our brethren? Well, we do it with our works. The Bible says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So God wants us to show forth the light of Jesus Christ in the form of our behavior and our works and our good deeds to others. So what's verse 19 got to do with it? He's saying, well, you say you believe in one God. You do well. He's saying that's what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees got all their doctrine right down. But they haven't done a practical thing for God in years. You've all probably met somebody like that that is very pious about their doctrine. Well, bless God, I, I've memorized the King James Bible and I know the five fundamentals of the faith. I can recite them all to you and I can quote 
uh, the Romans wrote from verbatim, and I, I know my doctrine. Well, when's the last time you told somebody about Jesus? Well, I, I know theology proper and pneumatology and soteriology and, well, great, you know a lot of Latin words, but when was the last time you helped somebody practically, spiritually? And that's what he's addressing here. You say you believe in one God. Oh, that's wonderful. You do well. But Satan and his angels believe that too. And they're not doing a bit of good. You see what he's getting at? Faith without works is dead. He says, you can have all the faith in the world and be of no earthly good whatsoever. Let's see your faith in action. Let's do something for God. And so we see our faith displayed, but then he says, your faith disputed in verse 20, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? You can say you have faith, but let me show you my faith. And so put it on display through your works. Then letter D, the appeal, verses 21 through the end. The appeal. What is his appeal to us? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? So first of all, James is contending something here tonight, that faith without works is dead. And so he has the proof of the contention, first of all. The proof of this contention. And he gives us the case of Abraham the Hebrew. And he talks, first of all, in chapter, verse 21, chapter 2, verse 21, of a great triumph. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Didn't he win this battle? Wasn't he justified by works? When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar. You see, obedience demonstrates our faith. Justified by works means that his obedience to God was justified in the light of his faith in God. Now think about this. How many of you have ever heard the phrase justifiable homicide? How many of you have ever thought about committing it? Don't raise your hand. My wife has. And it would be justifiable if she did. Justifiable homicide just simply means that if you took somebody's life and you can justify it by the law, then you'll probably get off. In other words, if it were self-defense. If somebody broke into your home, they were about to harm your family, and you were protecting your family by, by shooting them or taking their life in some way or just fighting them, and they fell and broke their neck. It's justifiable because in the eyes of the law, you are justified by your behavior. That's what being justified by our works means as well. Think about this. Let me put it this way. Abraham took his son Isaac up to the top of a mountain, tied him up, laid him upon an altar, raised a knife and was about to plunge it into his chest when God stopped him. Would that behavior be justified in any sane thinking culture? Not at all. But it was justified because God told him to do it. And so it was his faith that justified the works and it was his works that justified his faith. The word justified simply means to put on display in this case. We look at the word justified in the book of Romans, and it's talking about a saving faith. And that word justified is a little different. It literally means, uh, it means to justify our sin. In other words, God paid the price, and so now our sin has been forgiven and protected. And, and we will no longer stand account for it before God. This word justified that we see in the book of James talks about to put on display, to demonstrate and so it is justified or demonstrated by his works. Then we see not only a great triumph, but we see a great truth in verse 22. 
Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? Author James is saying that faith and works partnered every step of the way. Every step that Abraham took towards that mountain, taking his son along, the Bible says he rose up early in the morning and he saddled his ass and he gathered some men together and they claved some wood and they put it upon the back of that donkey and he got his son Isaac and they got some water together and they set on the trip and everything that he did was partnered with faith, all of his works. Because if they weren't partnered with faith, he'd have never done them. And so his faith and his works went hand in hand. That's a great truth. Then we see in the next verse, verse 23, a great trust. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God. Well, I tell you what. I cannot think personally, maybe you can, and, maybe, and you're welcome to your opinion. I can't think of another place in the Bible or another person in the Bible that had to have a greater faith in God than Abraham when he was giving his son in sacrifice. Can anybody? I'm not going to argue with you. If you think of another one, praise the Lord, that's fine. But for me, for Abraham having to, the Bible says simply, he believed God. Read the scriptures, Genesis chapter 22. Abraham called out to God. Abraham rose up early in the morning. He saddled his ass and off he went. And he took his son. And the Bible doesn't say anything about hesitation. He tied him up, laid him upon the altar. And he was about to sacrifice him. That's a lot of faith. So Abraham had a great trust. And the Bible is saying that kind of faith justifies. Putting our faith into action. God saying, let me see your works. Are you really have an active faith? Could your faith be tested like that? And would your works line up with what you say you believe? So we see a great trust and we see a great testimony in the second part of that same verse. And it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Now look at this testimony. He was called the friend of God. There's a result to having works and faith go together. He was called the friend of God. He said, well, nobody saw it though. The Bible says that when he came to the land of Moriah, he left his servants there at the border. Just he and Isaac. Do you want to know who saw it? Isaac saw it. His son saw his great faith. God saw it. And the Holy Spirit recorded it for all of us to see. It was important. And so this testimony shone through because his works and his faith went hand in hand and they matched up. And then we see a great test, verse 24. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. You say, where's the test? The test is for you. Do you see it? He says, ye see then? The Holy Spirit is asking us tonight, the, the readers of the letter of, that James wrote, do you see this? Do you see how works and faith go together? Don't miss it. It's very important. Our faith and our works must line up. We must be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Our actions must testify what we believe. So let's, let's show forth good works. So a great test. Then we see a second case, the case of Rahab the harlot. Look at verse 25. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? See what is declared of her? First of all, she's justified by works. She was justified by works. Her works lined up with her faith. You say, wait a minute, Rahab was a harlot from Jericho. 
Jericho was in the land of Canaan, and they served false gods. Do you know what Rahab said when she met the spies, though? We have heard what your God did on the other side of Jordan. And you say, well, how do you know she even believed it, though? Because she was afraid of what God was about to do on their side of Jordan. And so she hid the spies on the roof, and then she let them down over the wall with a rope, and she lied on their behalf. You say, why? Her works lined up with her faith. She proved to those spies, hey, I believe that your God is able. And so by putting faith in him, her works lined up. And she acted in accordance with her faith. She didn't betray her faith. Instead, she followed through with her faith. And so she was justified of her works. That is what is declared of her. And what was done by her, I just explained. And then we see the point of the contention, verse 26. So he proves his contention by using Abraham and Rahab. And then he gives us the point. Verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Boy, he wants you to understand what kind of dead he's talking about. You've, you've, been, to, uh, you've been to maybe a, a sing-along or a music thing, and you go, boy, this, this place is just kind of dead. It's kind of quiet. Have you ever been to a, a party or something, a birthday party, and you go, well, this is a dead party, man. These people don't know how to have any fun. He's not talking about that kind of dead. And you might get that impression reading the Scripture. You might say, well, he's just talking about, you know, kind of, Dull, boring, low-key. That's all he's talking about. Verse 26, he makes his point. For as the body without the spirit is dead. That's dead. Dead as a doornail dead. Not coming back dead. Separated dead. Without life, without breath, without movement. Dead. That's what he's talking about. He says, so faith without works is dead. God, he's saying, listen, work out. Let's see some evidence of your faith. Let's, let's be an, have an active, living, vibrant faith, not a dead faith. That's something to grow into. That's something to strive for. Our faith is a saving faith. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the theme of Scripture. But our faith is also a transforming faith. It's a saving faith, but it's a living faith. A faith in the heart is a faith that only God sees. A faith with works is a faith that the world sees. Let the world see Jesus through our works. Brother McPherson, you come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to grow thereby. And Father, strengthen us each day to live out our faith visibly before a lost and dying world. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor.